This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Pro-democracy legislators in Hong Kong were disqualified from their elected posts last week after the People's Republic of China determined that Hong Kong could, if they wanted, disqualify any legislators for essentially any reason they wanted. In reaction, the rest of the pro-democracy legislators, 22 out of the total of 70 legislative council members, resigned en masse. And what is next for the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong is uncertain. And if there is one thing that has dominated the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, it is uncertainty. Could a movement trying to stop Hong Kong citizens from being extradited to China to face far more harsh courts which do not ensure the freedoms Hong Kong residents thought they were promised, could that kind of movement succeed? As they are a pro-democracy movement, demanding expanded political participation, standing up against a human rights-abusing nation like China, it would seem the international left would certainly support their cause. But with demonstrators carrying flags of the United States and supporting Republican Party policies of selling arms to the region in order to protect national sovereignty, and the movement's deep concerns of what a Biden administration means for their protests, things get a lot less certain and a lot more complicated real fast. This morning, we will have the return of journalist Brian Hugh, a freelance translator, writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia, and founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine. Brian was on our show most recently in April of this year to give us a report on what was happening where he lives in Taiwan with the coronavirus pandemic. This will be Brian's fifth appearance on This Is Hell, dating back to 2015. Brian was a Democracy and Human Rights Service Fellow at the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy from 2017 to 2018. You can find out more about New Bloom at newbloommag.net. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Hugh, that's H-I-O-E. You can find out and find all of Brian's writing at his website, brianhugh.info. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Well, if it's Monday, it must be Daphne Augustin. Daphne, how was your weekend? And please tell me it was far more exciting than mine. Uh, I don't know. I mean, with finals and COVID spikes, <laughs> it's uh, tough. But uh, I think the most exciting thing was I made Turkish tea. Mm. Where'd you get Turkish tea from? Um, from this like horrible thing called Amazon. But uh, <laughs> I did buy a samovar, which is like a double teapot thing, and it's really nice. I had Turkish. I ordered Turkish food this weekend, and it was fantastic. The baba ganoush is totally different. It's like more of a creamy baba ganoush. I had this amazing platter of uh, appetizers. It was really, really great. Turkish food is fantastic. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is that, uh, oh, I don't know, I can't remember. Amazon. Freaking Amazon. Drives me nuts. I see those Amazon packages show up all the time. They drive me crazy. My weekend was far too short. I don't know if it's the pandemic wearing me down emotionally, physically, or if it's the switch to doing daily shows catching up with me, but every weekend seems at least one day too short. Not that I would know what to do with that extra day, but an extra day every week of not knowing what to do with the time sounds pretty freaking fantastic to me right around now at 10.03 a.m. on a Monday morning. More importantly, Daphne, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what are you refusing to concede?
What are you refusing to concede? That's pretty good. What are you refusing to concede? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new, brand new, just put online this weekend, Gray on Black, This Is Hell Winter Cap. You can check out the new Gray on Black, This Is Hell Winter Cap, which has a liner, and it's incredibly warm. I (laughs) I wore it all weekend. And all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. What are you not conceding at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio. You can email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner of the brand new this is hell lined embroidered winter cap. Daphne will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what are you not conceding? What are you not conceding? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Daphne has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is... is... disgusting. I'm sorry. And I want to apologize <laughs> before I even... So, go ahead, Daphne. Vomiting. Uh, according to an article at pedestrian.tv with a headline, young Aussies shared their number one hangover cures, so here's some tips for your next day ruiner. <laughs> a tactical vom can fix your hangover. <laughs> a tactical vom. <laughs> it's so gross. The, st- the story reports, cheeky spew, having a tack, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes it all just needs to come up. There's a few rules that need to be applied here. First of all, making yourself bomb long-term is bad. Think of the acid on your teeth alone. Second of all, if you're doing it on a night out, your next step will be... um, your next step better be heading straight home to brush your teeth, chuck a liter liter of water, and sleep for 12 hours. Third, actually, we're good. That's it. That makes this week's hangover cure... Vomiting. <laughs> Vomiting. That is just the grossest of all the hangover cures. And by the way, I'm so glad that we learned Australian slang for vomiting. Cheeky spew, having attack. Gross. Putting profits before people since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to help out your friends here at completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Sure, you can get the new Graham Black This Is Hell winter cap, face mask, t-shirt, trucker's cap, or tote bag, or the enamel steel camping This Is Hell coffee mug to show your support, or the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive containing dozens of interviews from the past 20 years. But you can also become a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. All you have to do is subscribe at... Patreon.com slash This Is Hell, where you can find over 150 Patreon podcasts right now. It's like an additional year of This Is Hell with new monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else online but on Patreon. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we shared a 2008 interview we did with the late, great, award-winning journalist Robert Perry, who wrote for Consortium News and broke many of the Iran-Contra scandal stories when he was writing for Newsweek and the Associated Press back in the 80s. Bob was on our show many, many, many times, but he appeared shortly after Barack Obama was elected president and prior to Obama being inaugurated to remind us the Iraq war was wrong and protesters got it right that the Bush administration's 
defense secretary who would become Obama's in a show of bipartisanism was linked to Iran-Contra and what progressives needed to be done, need to do once an Obama presidency began a couple of months later. It's a poignant reminder of hopes for what can be done and what happens when that hope is dashed, not by outsiders, but from within. We also shared election reactions from up north in small-town America via the letters written by locals to the weekly community newspaper, the Houghton Lake Resorter in Roscommon County, Michigan. As Election Day neared, some residents were putting dolls wearing blackface on their lawns. Their neighbors were complaining anonymously about what they saw as racist depictions. It's especially offensive with voting day coming up, which led to others in the area writing about how anything reported anonymously is fake news and everyone seemingly knowing who God wants to be as president of the United States. And when God enters your political worldview, whether it's right or left, and it's usually on the right wing variety, it kind of ends the possibility for any democratic debate. But you can only hear our interview with Robert Perry from right after Obama was elected about what the left needed to do next and didn't or couldn't, and my report on election reaction in small-town America by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. Capitalism is the virus, and this is hell. Dozens were arrested yesterday in Washington, D.C. as protests against the outcome of the election turned violent. The protesters are in denial about who the president should be come come Inauguration Day, and it's easy to understand why they have such a degree of denialism. It's not difficult to understand whatsoever. A lot of people who are liberals have been trying to wrap their mind around that denialism, but it's really easy to understand. I I don't know about you, but in order for me to get out of bed, I need to go through a lot of denialism just to start my day, just to get my feet on the floor. For me, I have to deny the existence of climate change every day. If I do not, I would be in the middle of the street screaming at cars to stop as we burn more fossil fuels every day, despite knowing the world is already changed by global warming. To a certain degree, I have to deny the virus exists. Right now, I should be doing this show, not from our studio, but sequestered away in my home having no contact with anyone but my non-wife. But if I was actually playing it as safe as I should, especially with the massive surge hitting the Great Lakes region right now, we might not be doing a show at all, again, to play it safe, as in increasing our chances for survival, for continuing to live. I certainly can't blame others for their denialism when I'm clearly in denial as well. It's, it's like we all default to denialism when the faults within our system are revealed. It makes sense. We are all indoctrinated with the ideas of American exceptionalism and innocence, but we are better than everyone else that we are better better than everyone else, that weird belief that we are the exception so we can do as we please without concerns for any long-term effects. And none of it is done with any animosity, only altruism, as the United States has never done anything other than what is good. When you are raised within that kind of thinking, with a public education system that instills patriotism informed by a purposeful misreading of history, into each and every student, it's no surprise so many, if not all of us, live in our own forms of denialism. We have been trained in schools to deny the truth about our past. We are informed every day by a news media that denies the truth about our present, focusing on reporting only on poll numbers for nearly a year while the U.S. engages in wars all over the world, of which most voters are completely unaware, 
And so it doesn't even become an election time issue. The fact that we're in wars all over the world wasn't even an election time issue because the media was so focused on polling numbers. We have been given the skills to not pay attention to our pending doom, thankfully, or else we'd all still be in bed, crying and hoping to fall back asleep as our only refuge becomes our dreams, dreams that we know have no future in our present. If you want to end the denialism of climate change, the pandemic of election results, then you have to end the belief in American exceptionalism and innocence that enables that denialism. If we continue to deny our past, then we deny our ability to get anything done in the present and completely deny any chance we have at a future. Today, I will be in denial about the working conditions of the people who made the clothes I am wearing, about their living conditions, about their lives, just as I will be about the food I am eating and those who produced it for me, as I am about all of the packaging that we unnecessarily make. We'll end up in landfills for decades, if not centuries, leaching God knows what into the drinking water supply, mostly of the marginalized and the poor. I have to deny institutional racism and poverty or else the depression would cause me to collapse in a heap of tears. I will be in denial about nearly every way in which I affect the world around me because without that denial, it's hard to think of anything. But this is hell coming up as Hong Kong kicks pro-democracy lawmakers out of Congress. The region anxiously awaits what a Biden administration may mean for their sovereignty and security. We will also have Rotten History give you some of the answers that you have given us on this week's question from hell, which is, what are you not conceding? What are you not conceding? We'll also tell you who is going to, who else is going to be on this week's show. The planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell. Pro-democracy legislators in Hong Kong were disqualified from holding their elected office last week. In protest, all the pro-democracy lawmakers resigned to protest China's increasing power over Hong Kong. Here to get us caught up on what's happening and what a Biden presidency may mean for the region. Returning to This Is Hell, journalist Brian Hugh is a freelance translator, a writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia, and founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine, which you can find out more about at newbloommag.net. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. Thanks for having me again. It's great you, to be on. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Hugh. That's H-I-O-E. You can find all of Brian's writing at his own website, brianhugh.info. This is Brian's fifth appearance here on This Is Hell, dating back to 2015. You can find all of our interviews with Brian. All you have to do is just go to thisishell.com and search again on his last name, H-I-O-E, Brian Hugh. So you wrote on the day uh, that four pro-democracy legislators were removed from Hong Kong's legislator, legislature. The Hong Kong government continues with efforts to repress political freedoms in Hong Kong with four pan-democratic legislators, among the latest to be disqualified from political office. So what's the rule? Uh, How are the legislators determined to be no longer qualified for office? Is this something that's happened in the past? Is this unprecedented? So what are the disqualification rules? Yeah, that's right. And so it's kind of been a moving goalpost almost because there have been cases of lawmakers disqualified from the legislature in the past. Um, it used to be a thing where legislators, when they were being sworn to office, would use the oath-taking ceremony as a sign of protest. Uh, this occurred sometimes in the past. And then uh, particularly in, in past years when there was at least a wave of young uh, lawmakers being elected, uh, some lawmakers did use it as, as a means of, of protest and they were as a result disqualified. Um, from office. And I think this has uh, just happened again. 
Um, now the Hong Kong government, for example, will prevent uh, people from running for office. It will disqualify people from before they run. It will disqualify lawmakers once they've been elected, uh, saying that they're not suited for office or, or they violate the terms of the kind of mini constitution of Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Basic Law. And in this case, um, you know, specifically, the, the claim this time was regarding that uh, these lawmakers were using filibusters to continually try to block motions put forth by the uh, probation camp, which holds majority in the legislative council. Um, but so I think this resignation then, it's, it's a way of forcing an issue that there's this, always this moving goalpost and increasingly for the pro-democracy movement using electoral means has become blocked. So how did they in the past, how did they protest when they were being sworn into office? And why wasn't that enough this time? Why didn't they just continue that process? Yeah, so this uh, particularly happened in 2016 with uh, six newly elected legislators being disqualified. And they, they used this as kind of, a, for example, laying out a flag that read Hong Kong is not part of China or, or stating slogans or rephrasing the uh, kind of the oath itself uh, to include references to protest. Or uh, most memorably, well, I, uh, one of the legislators read it extremely slowly, just like one word every sentence, uh, every 30 seconds, let's say. And so uh, they would use this as a way to draw attention also that they... Sometimes they did not agree with the uh, what they're being sworn into office to do, actually, that they were taking office to kind of carry out uh, their own political agendas that were not that of, of just maintaining the system, that they were actually taking office to change the system as uh, they were kind of elected to do. Um, but just now it is that that if Beijing does not approve of you, if it does say that it does not um, have faith in you to not advocate, for example, for Hong Kong independence or for pushing for democracy, they'll be prevented from running. Um, you could be disqualified on some pretext um, just, uh, just saying that again, you, the, the government does not have faith in you to adhere to, uh, not pushing for sedition against China. And, uh, and so that's, it's, it's one of those things that just, uh, the legislative elections this year were actually just canceled entirely because of COVID-19 uh, using this as a pretext. Um, but just, uh, as a result, you know, the legislative term was extended by another year. And so some of these lawmakers that are pro-democracy agreed to stay on. Um, in this case, I think just now uh, the, the pan-democratic camp is, is kind of tired of it. I don't think they want to play this kind of electoral game anymore in which they're always going to have the cards stacked against them. So this, uh, I think this is trying to shift kind of what uh, I guess you would say activism in Hong Kong now will advocate forward now that there's no way of running an office. Well, I've only got about seven follow-up questions to what you just said. <laughs> so how much of a risk to public health would elections have been in July? Were there serious health concerns? You were just saying that it was only a pretext to cancel the elections. Why do you say that it was only a pretext? Were there still health concerns? Could there have been a free, fair, and safe election in Hong Kong? Yeah, that's also a question. Uh, I think a lot of countries around the world are particularly struggling with the uh, question of how to run elections during a pandemic. I mean, the U.S. just went through elections. And so I think that there is concerns, uh, valid concerns regarding uh, COVID-19. The Hong Kong government eventually did get the pandemic under control, but initially it was actually uh, intent on, on basically downplaying it uh, because of the fact this was a pandemic that came from China. They did not want to close borders. Um, because of the fact that that this uh, pandemic came from China and there are the current government is is put in power by Beijing, uh, for them it would kind of been a blow to facilitating the closer political relation between uh, Hong Kong and China, erasing the, any distinction between their political systems, uh, gradually pushing towards uh, making Hong Kong into just another part of China if you actually did close borders uh, because of this pandemic. And so that led to backlash, but eventually there were measures taken uh, and, and quarantine measures, um, you know, requiring 14-day quarantines for if you go to Hong Kong, uh, tracking people, for example, uh, once they arrive by electronic wristband. Um, 
but you know it's possible that it could have been held uh, with enough precautions. It's possible that you know you could have used different forms of voting. Um, but just it's interesting that the, the Hong Kong government really hedged its bets here. At first, disqualified uh, twelve pandemic lawmakers from running, and then it decided not to hold elections altogether. Um, so it kind of really just I think uh, looking for more than one way just prevent. Uh, pan-Democrats from, from gaining more seats in, in the uh, Legislative Council. Because um, there were district elections previously, uh, last year, and this actually, this, this resulted in historic gains for the uh, pro-democracy forces. Um, out of 17, out of 18 district councils, uh, pro-democracy groups gained 17. Uh, they gained around like three, 388 seats out of a 479 uh, seats in the district councils uh, across Hong Kong. And so it was anticipated on the basis of that, that the uh, pro-democracy forces within the legislature would actually just gain substantially. Um, the Hong Kong legislature is actually rigged against democracy. Uh, there are only 40 seats that out of 70 that are, are actually democratic elected. Uh, there are this, there's a strange system called functional constituency, which is also uh, present in Macau, um, in which actually corporate and business interests are directly allowed to vote in government. And so the result is that uh, these, these uh, functional constituencies skew towards pro-Beijing forces that are more pro-business. And so the, the odds are stacked against pro-democracy forces to begin with. But even then, it was thought that the pan-democrats would gain substantially, um, that pro-democracy forces would, uh, pan-democratic or otherwise, would gain within the Legislative Council. And so one can see why the Hong Kong government just did not want elections to take place. So are it, the filibuster that <laughs> pan-democrats, I know, I had like 11 more follow-up from that one too. Uh, so... Uh, the filibuster um, that the, pan, the legislative council members that are uh, going through and the pan-Democrats, the filibusters that they were engaging in, uh, mm-hmm. what were they uh, blocking? But more importantly, I guess, is how popular w- were those kind of filibusters? Because often, you know, when there are filibusters, mm-hmm. it, can, oh. it can affect the people who are the most marginalized, the people who might need the most help by a government that might be distributing aid in some way. So it, it, were, were these filibusters in any way, uh, were these filibusters popular and what were they trying to block? I think it's also it is reflective that, um, you know, there's a kind of debate tactically, I think, within Hong Kong currently um, because of the fact that it's impossible for pan-Democrats to get things through the legislative council. Um, I think it's also just increasingly impossible even to get you know basic measures to fight COVID-19 through, for example. And that was kind of the dissatisfaction. Um, but then, you know, one of the reasons why these filibusters were uh, being held was to prevent, for example, uh, national security legislation from being passed, justifying uh, crackdowns on democratic freedoms using new laws, uh, raising the penalties for protesting or uh, expressing dissent against China, uh, criminalizing a sedition. Um, this was something that had historically been protested over the last uh, 20 years, effectively, since 2003, um, which was just six years after Hong Kong returned from uh, British colonial control to Chinese control. Um, and so there's concern that criminalizing sedition against China would allow, for example, up to a lifetime in jail, and that the Hong Kong government would eventually push for this and use this to crack down on democracy advocates. But then eventually, I mean, uh, earlier this year, the the uh, China's National People's Congress, their legislative body, passed this anyway, just circumventing the Hong Kong legislature. Uh, so any pretense that Hong Kong had to autonomy of a legal separation from China was increasingly kind of not uh, present anymore. And so then, then actually these filibusters are they actually useful? I think that they were increasingly less so because now China actually doesn't want, doesn't even need to try to circumvent. Um, it just it would actually just circumvent entirely the, the Hong Kong government and and the courts and so forth. Uh, for example, removing these four legislators would actually 
uh, just be through empowering the Hong Kong government to remove legislators that it decides that it needs to without going through the courts. And so this kind of this is a pretense of due process or uh, oversight from uh, legislature just no longer existed. And so I think that filibusters are viewed as increasingly ineffective. And I think that's that's also part of why the uh, pandemic app would slowly abandon this practice and decide to just resign on mass. You were mentioning how pan-democratic uh, leaders or politicians have won 17 of 18 district council seats. How much power does that give the pan-democrats? How much power does that give them relative to what is held in the legislative council? Um, not as much because uh, local district councils have much less power. These are local government positions taking control, allocation, uh, budgeting. Um, it's, it's very actually at the level of kind of granular local politics. Um, and some of these races are, are particularly close. I mean, just uh, because because it is such local politics, um, but it's symbolic, and it shows that that pro democracy forces in Hong Kong um, have power, and so that's that's what the the real threat is. And I think that just next, um, basically, the government may just turn towards targeting district councils, um, targeting particularly because there was a wave of young uh, activists, more progressive sometimes politicians that were elected, and just that they're the next target. Um, but this was still much more symbolic compared to the uh, Legislative Council, in which there is actually much more power. But I think that, again, again, I think uh, as as electoral means become uh, increasingly blocked, probably this will lead to more protests in the streets. Um, what's interesting about the movement in Hong Kong was that sometimes as a way of uh, kind of channeling the, 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 I think when the movement was at a boiling point and things were, it seemed like it was about to explode, people would try to channel the energy towards electoral campaigns as a way to ensure that things not that too out of control into the point in which there is much more uh, violence than perhaps was necessary. Um, yeah. You were mentioning the um, uh, amount of influence that corporate interests have within the legislature. Do you mm -hmm. see these protests then as, and I know this is an either or, and it's a horribly framed question, but uh, do you see these not protests more as anti-China or as anti-corporate influence over Hong Kong governance. So that's actually a very interesting thing too, actually, because these two uh, things overlap, but not exactly. Um, so I think these protests are directly about this issue of China, about this fear of becoming uh, Hong Kong becoming legally the same as, as China. It also touches on identity, uh, just rising Hong Kong identity versus Chinese identity. Yet at the same time, as Hong Kong is a very neoliberal system of governance goes to show, pro-China interests did coincide with pro-business interests to a great extent. Um, if you're a capitalist and you want to make money, it makes more sense to go to the Chinese market, which is much larger than Hong Kong. And so if you're from Hong Kong, then you want to be doing business with China. You want Hong Kong to have closer political and economic relations with China. Uh, for you as a capitalist, it doesn't actually matter to you if uh, Hong Kong just loses democratic freedoms, because you will preserve your economic privilege. Uh, you will be wealthy and you know, cross borders. Borders are not as uh, as meaningful to you or affect your life as much as it does an ordinary person, a member of the working class, whatever. Um, and so uh, that's a factor that you see in both Hong Kong and also Taiwan, that the kind of pro-business interests oftentimes overlap with the uh, pro-China interests. And it's not absolute. I mean, there are some capitalists that are, for example, more pro-Hong Kong or pro-Taiwan. A uh, big example is Jimmy Lai, the owner of the Apple Daily, which is a major newspaper, um, also quite tabloidy, but is a major newspaper nonetheless. And he's a billionaire, and uh, he actually is Chinese, but he did he does is a long-term resident of Hong Kong and so forth. Um, but for him, I mean, he for him he did uh, try to stick up for democracy, and it stands that he could make more money if he went to China. But some capitalists are more pro 
Hong Kong identity or, or democratic freedoms. But in most cases, generally speaking, uh, you do stand more if you go to the Chinese market. And so I think these things overlap, but sometimes I think the uh, left-wing critique of uh, democratic advocacy in Hong Kong, pushing for democratic freedoms, is sometimes lacking, pointing to where this overlaps, but where there are also gaps in this. Mm. You write that pri- you wrote. I'm sorry. You wrote prior to the mass resignation. Pan Democratic Executive Council member Ronnie Tong has been among those to urge Pan Democratic lawmakers to not resign in mass, citing the irreversible consequences of a mass resignation. How likely is it that this could end up being a self-inflicted wound by the Pan Democrats? Yeah, I think it's a question because then I think that the onus is on protesting the streets again. And I think that particularly for pan-democratic lawmakers, um, you know, one of the tensions that's arisen in the movement, particularly in the last few years, uh, particularly since the 2014 umbrella movement, is the rise of younger, more uh, localist activists who are more kind of hardline on on issue. I'm pushing, for for example, Hong Kong independence or more emphatic on identity, whereas pan-democratic lawmakers did kind of take a more moderate approach, uh, oftentimes seeking electoral means. Um, there's a term, for example, uh, Lam Chao, which is like uh, if you burn, you know, if if we burn, you burn with us. And it's kind of this uh, nihilistic strategy called for, just taking extreme tactics to uh, try to accentuate the situation in Hong Kong. Uh, some people even phrase it as kind of accelerationist in notion. And so there's this uh, uh, tension between them and the more traditional pan-democrats within this kind of spectrum of the pro-democracy force in Hong Kong. And it's also possible that the pan-democrats, who are, are actually more uh, moderate, have actually isolated themselves politically by resigning, because that limits their influence within the movement, perhaps. Uh, there is one localist that alone of the pro-democracy uh, uh, legislators decide not to resign and he tends to stick it out within the legislature. Eventually that's qualified, that's almost certain, but he is using this as an opportunity to kind of gain ground um, or to make himself more known, widely known. Um, so I think it's also reflective of this kind of state of play within Hong Kong pro-democracy politics between more older and more traditional factions and newer and more kind of radical, but not necessarily left-wing radical factions. Considering Chinese influence, are there any simple reforms the Legislative Council could have passed that would have satisfied protesters and avoided the situation Hong Kong finds itself in now? It's one of those things, actually, because I think this entire situation, uh, basically going back for basically the last uh, few years, Hong Kong, uh, the China has particularly made the situation in Hong Kong worse and worse for itself. Uh, oftentimes, it has come in with an iron fist when a velvet glove approach would actually have sufficed. Um, the Hong Kong government and the Chinese government have the tendency to just come in and really try to uh, uh, kind of marginalize new voices trying to be heard, to really put them down and to try to instill a sense of fear, when actually if it had taken an approach of being more open to negotiation to allow Hong Kong some autonomy, um, this would have not actually led to the situation developing to the current point. Uh, what's interesting is, as I mentioned, with these kind of new political forces that emerged that advocate Hong Kong independence, Hong Kong independence was not being discussed six years ago. This is actually a relatively new idea. During the Umbrella Movement in 2014, in fall 2014, uh, this was actually just an almost unheard of idea. But this has become increasingly mainstream uh, within the protests in Hong Kong, particularly as they've exploded into the open last year because of, uh, uh, as provoked by an extradition bill that the Hong Kong government originally proposed. And so this is this is one of those things that China has actually, I think oftentimes authoritarian governments do, really inflame dissent against itself, when in fact being more conciliatory perhaps would have not had, uh, would have not led to the situation. So, so more than anything, do you think this movement, this uprising has had a rhetorical impact on the political debate and discussion within Hong Kong? 
I think so, yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, part of it, I mean, part of why part of this is uh, this event is significant is because it will determine the future of uh, pro-democracy politics. It determines uh, just kind of the rhetoric it takes, uh, the style it takes, uh, who's leading um, the movement or the largest voices anyway, um, and so forth. Uh, for example, I mean, things have changed in the movement. Between 2014 and the movement last year in 2019, uh, there was kind of a lack of visible leaders because within the past five years, between 2014 and 19, uh, it became increasingly known that if you were a visible leader, such as a Joshua Wong or someone like that, you would be targeted. Uh, and people were kind of not as satisfied with the moderate kind of uh, politics of someone like a Joshua Wong in the sense of turn towards a localism, but also be this kind of uh, spontaneous decision making loft, which was just taking place through the Internet or Internet discourse. Um, so I think that that it's it's a it's a question just what I mean, there eventually will be some form of uh, protests taking place again in Hong Kong, even as the movement from last year is kind of cooling down in intensity. Uh, but just what form will this take? I think this is what's up in the air at present. You said China used an iron fist when they could have used a velvet glove. What does that reveal to you, if anything, about the state of internal Chinese politics today? I think a lot of it's really about projecting power. And that's a, it's one of those things. Um, the Chinese government particularly is... It tends to view a lot of the so-called separatist movements on its peripheries or within its borders as uh, needing a uniform policy. So, for example, it needs to come in severely against Hong Kong in order to prevent, let's say, Tibetan or Uyghur activists in Xinjiang from feeling inspired by this and feeling the, that they can rise up and, and change things and that they can actually affect things. Um, and same with Taiwan, for example. And so that that this that that if you don't show the protesters of Hong Kong who is in charge, then people in Taiwan will be encouraged to kind of push themselves further away from China. And so I think that's that's part of it is just the logic of authoritarianism that uh, oftentimes you just want to project power and you're not wanting to be conciliatory uh, because you're afraid of just that the whole web will unravel if you don't do this. Um, but it's interesting just it shows the kind of inflexibility of the current government that it sometimes will actually. Uh, not take very intelligent approaches to these various local circumstances. And it's, in fact, will just come in with a very hard line. You write that during American presidential elections, Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam urged the U.S. to stop interfering in elections in Hong Kong, again continuing to pin the causes of the protests that have taken place in Hong Kong on shadowy external forces rather than purely domestic concerns regarding the deterioration of political freedoms in Hong Kong. So I got a couple of questions for you about that. First of all, so from your perspective in Taiwan, from the people that you talk with, what is the reaction to American complaints of interference in U.S. elections when the United States has such a long history of interfering in other countries' elections? It's actually just it's incredibly ironic um, because I think particularly in Taiwan and Hong Kong, people oftentimes are not actually aware, strangely enough, of America's history of interfering in other countries' elections. And so there's this kind of blindness to the actions of the Trump administration domestically. Um, I mean, for example, uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan are sometimes back in terms of a legislature or uh, in terms of public statements by these traditional Republican politicians, the Ted Cruz's, the Marco Rubio's of the world, who are very antagonistic towards China because of their Cold War antagonism towards quote unquote communist countries. Uh, and then, you know, these people will be ranting about Black Lives Matter being a Chinese plot to overthrow America. In the meantime, just pointing to Chinese accusations of Hong Kong protests being an American plot to undermine China and not realizing that there's some kind of parallel between this kind of conspiratorial claim. Um, I think that's, that's one of those things about these Republicans. Uh, but then there's this idealization, I think, which is very unfortunate in 
Taiwan and Hong Kong alike of Trump, uh, just because this view that he has taken a strong stance against China and therefore he is our ally and therefore the Republicans are, are stronger on these issues. Um, there's this, this real uh, unawareness, I think, of the kind of intricacies of American politics. And I think it's very disappointing, uh, particularly we'll see protesters in Taiwan or Hong Kong, they're involved in progressive causes. So I was looking at Black Lives Matter and actually thinking that this may actually be a Chinese plot to overthrow America. I mean, I don't know, even even Tiananmen Square dissidents nowadays, such as Wang Dan, have actually kind of claimed this. And it, it's quite shocking. Um, yeah. yeah. So is does U.S. support, does the Trump administration support for the Hong Kong protesters in any way? For instance, applying sanctions against Hong Kong, does that in any way help those that movement or undermine that movement? It's actually a very interesting too, because I think this is again a sort of a, there's been a sort of blindness about it. Some of the sanctions proposed by the uh, Trump administration targeting Hong Kong actually uh, in response to Chinese actions actually targets Hong Kong itself. It does not target China. It removes special economic privileges that Hong Kong has, which results in a loss of trade, but who does this affect? It actually affects Hong Kongers. The claim of these uh, of the justification for doing this is that this will affect China too because of their economic investments in Hong Kong. But actually, first in line of fire are people in Hong Kong. And so this kind of bizarre logic that you know you're hurting yourself to hurt China, and America's hurting you to hurt China, but then you celebrate this. And I think that's just uh, it's reflective of how I think people don't actually look critically at the U.S. Just there's this idealization of the U.S. Uh, this belief that if the U.S. is taking a rhetorical stance against China, therefore it must be doing something, um, and this is good, and that the U.S. is on our side. And I think that's that's just a very flawed logic. Um, so I think I think that's it's 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 one of those disappointing things that there's not been this critical view on the U.S. Um, there's been again just a, not a sense of the U.S.'s history of uh, of doing these kind of actions all across the world, basically just backing forces to oppose other forces and then disposing of them when they're no longer useful, or backing right wing dictators. Uh, as as uh, in, the, in the name of anti-communism. I mean, Taiwan just was an authoritarian country, for example, for decades under Chiang Kai-shek. And the kind of pro-democracy forces that eventually push for democratization in, China, in Taiwan uh, and are, are more pro-independence, actually, despite the fact they fought against Chiang Kai-shek with the U.S. backed, they're, not, they're still blind to the U.S. doing this. And it, it's the same pattern now. The, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading your writing is how the support that uh, people in Hong Kong, people in Taiwan may have for the Republican Party because of the Republican Party's being being so anti-China, being willing to even send military aid to the region. To what extent does that push, either in Taiwan or in Hong Kong, to what extent does that t- push the politics within that country to the right, towards the Republican conservative side of the you know worldview that we have here in the United States? Yeah, that's a very concerning thing, actually. And I think it really, the jury is still out on that one. Um, you do have this view, I think, uh, I mean, for example, in Hong Kong, you do have all these people that uh, now will back all these crazy conspiracy theories regarding Trump, including odd, uh, just, you know, conspiracy theories about a stolen election and that kind of thing, when just the election in Hong Kong was itself stolen. Um, but then in terms of politics, I think that, um, you know, we actually, there actually is, for example, Conservative groups uh, such as the Falun Gong that have aligned themselves with the Trump administration. The Falun Gong being a uh, Chinese religious group that was persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party, and uh, they embrace this kind of very right-wing politics because of their persecution by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and I think that that actually that does stand to affect, for example, politics in in Hong Kong and Taiwan. 
Um, Taiwan, I mean, just it did legalize gay marriage. Uh, it is a progressive uh, administration in power now. And sometimes I do wonder if just these Republicans are backing Taiwan. If they ever Google search Taiwan, how would they? What would they think actually? Uh, if they knew more about it. Um, but then I think that is actually a concern. I think that uh, because people will associate this set of politics with individuals they perceive as backing Taiwan or Hong Kong, that could actually lead to a rightward shift. And I think that one does see this kind of rhetoric uh, actually just becoming more commonplace, uh, directly taken from Trump or these Republicans in both Taiwan and Hong Kong. And I, I, I kind of worry about that. So do Democrats in office here in the United States necessarily mean that China will gain more power over Taiwan or Hong Kong? Is that the perception in the region? Uh, sometimes it is uh, because of the fact that I think particularly uh, the Obama administration is blamed for having uh, adhered to this policy of engagement with China that failed to check the rise of China uh, and and just uh, kind of being soft on China. The Democrats are perceived as that. I think part of it is because of rhetoric. There's a lack of awareness that I think structurally the U.S. and China are basically headed towards conflict. Uh, the world 10 years ago is very different from the world now because of the fact that China was not an economic superpower 10 years ago the way it is now, or politically as strong as it, as it is now. Um, so I think just, you know, I think there's not an awareness of that. Um, but I think also just, uh, again, it's, it's part of its rhetoric. There's not awareness that a lot of the legislation against China pushed uh, in the, the kind of past few years under the Trump administration is actually bipartisan. Or that, for example, arms sales to Taiwan has occurred under uh, both Republican and Democratic presidential administrations. Um, part of it is definitely that the more vocal voices are these Republican hawks, and um, they are oftentimes the one that propose the legislation that is targeting China, even if it is later on backed by Democratic politicians as well. Um, and so I think it's, it's a, there's a question then about what happens with the Biden administration. I mean, it's generally thought that the Biden administration will not be as unilateral as Trump in terms of measures being taken against China, but there's concerns that he will also be soft on China the way Obama was because of, I mean, it's perceived as being because of the fact that he was Obama's vice president. So do you expect anything? I mean, you were just saying that the policy when it comes to selling arms to the region seems to be bipartisan. Do you really expect much of a difference when, if there is a President Biden instead of a President Trump? You know, I just think it's very ironic because uh, the concern about Biden is basically that he will somehow sell out Taiwan or Hong Kong or that he will just abandon Taiwan or Hong Kong to China. But that's actually that should be a concern no matter who the American president is, because that's just how America's acted all over the world. I mean, Trump uh, did actually on, on numerous occasions basically suggest that he would use Taiwan or Hong Kong as a bargaining chip in trade negotiations with China, that this was something he would leave out or just allow China to have as a way to secure more favorable economic conditions for the U.S. I mean, America first, after all. So I don't know why that should surprise anybody. But just these kind of developments were not paid attention to in Taiwan and Hong Kong. So I think this concern about a Biden administration kind of suddenly just abandoning Taiwan or Hong Kong, it's valid. But that also should be the case under Trump, because that's how America has behaved towards any of the forces it backs in, in order to, let's say, uh, counter a quote-unquote communist country um, in terms of propping up all these these forces. I mean, it's, it's a similar thing that happened in Syria with the Kurds, for example. Um, and just there's all this proof to that, but just people refuse to believe that. I mean, this negative press about Trump or these stories about him openly contemplating this that he would actually just abandon Taiwan or Hong Kong for a trade deal. Now, this does not get reported on. I think domestic media in Taiwan and Hong Kong will amplify positive press about Trump and just uh, kind of downplay any negative press about Trump and vice versa with Biden in that case. 
I want to talk about that sacrificial nature of Taiwan for a second. You write that while continued confrontation with China under under Biden is likely, it is more of a question what stance the U.S. will take vis-a-vis Taiwan. More confrontational policy against China does not necessarily entail support for Taiwan, with Taiwan possibly being left out of a strategic alliance aimed at containing China. Is Taiwan the sacrificial lamb to China to avoid war? Does Do we have to pretty much abandon Taiwan in order to avoid war in the region with China? That's a scary thing, and I think that's the thing in, uh, that people in Taiwan are concerned about because there's this belief that the Biden administration could perhaps do that. Um, because Obama did, uh, near the tail end of his second term, try to uh, have a pivot towards Asia, kind of have a stronger stance on uh, China, but Taiwan was seen as being left out of this. Um, Tsai, the current president, the uh, leader of the Democratic Progressive Party, uh, her previous election bid in 2012 was sabotaged actually by the Obama administration uh, because of the fact that uh, it was concerned about having a more pro-independence president uh, take power. And so there's there's that concern that Democrats could perhaps just do that again to uh, to her party and to her presidency because of the fact they are more pro-independence leaning. Um, but I actually, it's just, yeah, just one of those things, I actually don't know, because I think that Taiwan is just in the awkward situation of being caught between two powers, uh, two empires, the U.S. and China, and there's kind of no good option out. And I think that just, uh, I don't I don't think China's in, in a position to really, uh, it's not in a position to military occupy Taiwan, it just cannot actually fight a war uh, and occupy Taiwan, uh, because, you know, for example, it will have to deal with other powers in the region. Uh, Japan is geographically very close to Taiwan, it would have to react in some way to it. Um, China has also not fought a war in 40 years, um, and it would be a major step if it actually did that. But there's the fear, I think, just which I think is valid, of of the U.S. just uh, betraying Taiwan or just deciding that this is it needs to be sacrificed as a geopolitical pawn. And so I think actually just increased uh, uh, criticism or skepticism of the U.S. Is, is very necessary in both Taiwan and Hong Kong because, again, the U.S., that's how it acts in, as an empire. Um, it will actually back regimes and then just abandon them. It will claim uh, that groups are its allies and then abandon them, I mean, as with the Kurds. And uh, I think, unfortunately, just there's too much idealization of the U.S. at present. Let's talk about that colonial and imperial legacy for a moment. You write, indeed, though many in Hong Kong have called for the restoration of democracy in Hong Kong. In truth, Hong Kong has never been democratic, this being a system set up under British colonial rule that then continued after the 1992 handover of Hong Kong to Chinese control. Is the British colonial legacy in Hong Kong an anti-democratic government that is vulnerable to countries like China? How much is Hong Kong not democratic and not having the, I don't know, guarantees or insulation against uh, making them vulnerable to being overthrown? How much is Hong Kong not democratic because of British colonialism? And how much is it undemocratic because of Chinese influence? So it's funny because uh, it's uh, it's it's true that is both because of a Chinese and British uh, the Chinese and the British agreeing that Hong Kong has a system of government uh, regarding, for example, the Sino-British Joint Declaration. Um, that Hong Kong has this incredibly uh, corporatist system of government in which literally uh, all these seats are actually just directly representing corporate interests is because the British agreed to it and also the Chinese agreed to it. And so I think particularly on the left, I mean, you do have tankies that will idealize China and then be like, oh, well, you know, British colonialism, look at these people in Hong Kong idealizing it. Um, I think I think that kind of idealization, it really comes from naivete um, and just this kind of romanticization of the past in light of the kind of bleak present. But then also China agreed to it. I mean, China agreed to have this very corporatist system of government in Hong Kong. Um, because of the fact that it suited their interests at the time. 
and so I think it, it's actually it's a it's a shared uh, product. I mean, just that's that's the thing though. I think that sometimes you do have people calling for the creation of a new feature using kind of a claim to be restoring a previous order. And I think that can be uh, sometimes it is rhetorical, but also it can be dangerous and it can be limiting of uh, possibilities for uh, a movement, for example. Yeah. Um, I think that's really yeah what the the movement in Hong Kong needs to reckon with the, the colonial past of Hong Kong and that how it reflects on the present. You wrote that Biden's foreign policy will likely be shaped by his experiences as a politician that came of age during the Cold War and the system of alliances built by the U.S. to contain the Soviet Union. The new Cold War framework is probably here to stay. Are our choices new Cold War or Chinese domination of Taiwan and Hong Kong and the end of their independence? Are those our only two choices that we have right now? So I think actually that's uh, what needs to be pushed for further further discussion of other ways out, uh, third ways out of this kind of binary um, of not just relying on one imperial power versus another in order to counter, I mean, for example, relying on U.S. empire in order to counter China or just agreeing to, let's say, Chinese hegemony. And so I think particularly for uh, countries and territories and places caught between U.S. and China, it needs, it needs to be more thinking about how to align together uh, something like a non-alignment movement or what have you in order to think ourselves out of this this binary between uh, a bipolar world caught between U.S. empire and Chinese empire, which those are the only alternatives. And I think this is the real challenge for the left particularly um, in terms of connecting with people that are, are skeptical of the left in Taiwan and Hong Kong and pointing to that there's more possibilities than just actually banking on one empire versus another. You also wrote that further clashes are expected with the one-year anniversary of the siege of the City University of Hong Kong coming up. Anniversaries of protest events continue to prove ripe for conflict. That siege happened from November 13th to November 15th last year, 2019, one year ago this past weekend, when at least 70 were wounded and many fled the university for nearby Hong Kong Polytechnic University which was then subsequently besieged by the police on November 17th, two days later. Were there protests in Hong Kong this weekend to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the siege of the City University of Hong Kong? And are more protests marking the anniversary of the subsequent sieges expected later this week? Yeah, I think it remains to be seen because there not have been flare-ups uh, as some feared. Uh, but whenever, what's interesting, particularly I think about the movement in Hong Kong, is how self-conscious it is of its own history. Whenever there's a major anniversary or protest event, there are protests to commemorate that, and that's an occasion for further clashes with the police. And so one will have monthly protests commemorating events that happened a year ago. Um, deaths, for example, deaths of protesters that occurred during protests uh, under mysterious circumstances, those are commemorated. Uh, there's a protester that died, his name was Alex Chow, and his anniversary commemorated. Uh, the memorial set up and they were torn down by the police and that became an occasion for a further protest. And so I think this, this is expected to continue because people in Hong Kong are still uh, very firmly conscious of what just happened a year ago. People have not forgotten about it. And so as people continue to mourn and deal with this, this trauma from a year ago, that's occasion for remembering why people are protesting to begin with. So how would you describe, how would you describe relations with police between the citizenry and the police in Hong Kong, even when there aren't protests happening? How would you describe that relationship with police? It's actually a very interesting, too, because uh, Hong Kong is the city of uh, police films. I mean, historically, there are all these police films where the police are the main character and they're depicted as heroic and so forth. And people joke sometimes that that era is just long past. Um, historically, there's a lot of trust in the police as, quote unquote, Asia's finest, as these uh, righteous, you know, enforcers of, of uh, law and order and, and that kind of thing. But just in the past uh, six years, just things have changed so radically. 
um, six years ago, people were actually kind of applauding police, like, thank you for maintaining public order, even at protests. And then just as there has been all this brutality that has occurred over the past few years, now that is no longer the case, now the police actively view themselves as above the people. They view the people as as, uh, as enemies. They refer to protesters as cockroaches, um, you know, their suspected killings, uh, disappearances, sexual assaults, um, all this, all this kind of these things. And so I think public trust in the police is, is basically forever broken. And I think that this will actually just, uh, um, you know, there, there's like, there have been the attempts to push for more radical calls of uh, abolitionism, just abolishing the police in Hong Kong. And I don't think really the movement mainstream has gotten there yet, but there's just, it is true that there's incredible distrust of the police at present. And I think this kind of, uh, uh, this reputation has built up over decades, which I think also was, you know, is, is questionable. I mean, this is actually just a faith in a colonial institution, actually. Uh, the Hong Kong police has its deep roots in uh, British colonialism and just trying to stamp out possible uprising against the British colonial authority. Um, but this, this is, 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 this trust is just gone forever. And I think that it will never really be rebuilt. Um, so long as things are, they are, they are, they are the way they are now in Hong Kong. If I remember correctly, the way we ended our conversation last time, we were discussing the potential for a possibility of not just a cold war, but a hot war with a lot of provocations happening from both sides, the Trump administration launching missiles towards China, as well as, uh, the Chinese, uh, sending a, supercarrier down the Taiwanese Strait as a provocation of the United States. Have you seen any more provocations when it comes to potential conflict between China and the United States? Absolutely. And so this is actually incredibly dangerous right now. And I think it's something that, uh, particularly on the left, we should be paying more attention to. Uh, there's been a continual pattern, uh, particularly Taiwan, around Taiwan. It's a flashpoint, a potential flashpoint of China sending uh, warplanes, for example, to airspace near Taiwan or conducting naval exercises near Taiwan. And just the number of planes are increasing. And now you'll have like 20 planes uh, crossing the median line of the Taiwan Strait, heading very close to Taiwan. Uh, previously, would never do this even a year ago. Uh, and just... Uh, um, you know, they'll come, they just, this happens on a daily basis now, basically. And then in response, the U.S. will also basically do the same thing in response. It, so it becomes a, a process of escalation. And what I fear is just basically at some point, someone gets panicky and hits the trigger or something like that. They fear for their own life. And that becomes an incident in which there is bloodshed. Um, and just an incident like that could be used as pretext for further conflict. Um, or you could have a false flag incident where someone just sets up like, oh, well, you know, the other side attacked first, and so now we're going to get to conflict. And so I think things are increasingly dangerous, and I think that this is, is something uh, to be watched. And particularly with this current bizarre period in the U.S. in which it's not clear what's going to happen. Um, you know, there's going to be chaos, that's for sure. Trump is not conceding, uh, but he also may no longer be in office. And in the meantime, before Biden takes power, if he does take power, he's going to try to force through all these things. This period is very dangerous for the region, and I think that's something that people should pay more attention to. But we'll see. One last question for you, Brian. We have been speaking with journalist Brian Hugh, freelance translator, writer on social movements and youth culture in Asia, founding editor at Taiwan-based New Bloom magazine. This is Brian's fifth appearance here on This Is Hell. You can find all of them at our website right now, thisishell.com, when you search on Brian's last name, Hugh, H-I-O-E. You can find out more about New Bloom at newbloommag.net. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Hugh and find all of Brian's writing at brianhugh.info at as you know, we do each and every time. Our final question for you is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response to support democracy. If I was somebody here in the United States and I was supporting the pan-democratic movement, supported the idea of more democracy, actual democracy in Hong Kong, does that mean I must therefore support 
military shipments to the re- to the region as well. Do I have to be in support of the military industrial complex if I am in support of Hong Kong or even Taiwanese democracy? Uh, I think at the end of the day, democracy has to be something that's not reliant on military force. And so I think that pushing for the ideas is much more important because I think that uh, they end up getting caught in this kind of a geopolitical conflict between different powers. So I think that it's a little coherent to be uh, against the military-industrial complex and also push for democracy in the region. And I think pushing for that discourse is the only way there can actually be democracy in the region. Fantastic answer. It's always great to have you on the show, Brian. I've really appreciated over the last five years, six years now, your insight as to what's happening in Hong Kong and Taiwan. I cannot thank you enough. One of my very favorite guests to have on the show. And make sure you go check out all of Brian's interviews here on This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and uh, searching on Brian's last name, Hugh. And uh, just make sure you go check out newbloommag.net as well. Thank you so much for being back on the show, Brian. Thanks for having me. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Daphne, can you please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how listeners are answering so far? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's popular. The question from hell is, what are you refusing to concede? Um, And... Andrew S. says, I have not gained weight in quarantine. The scale is fake news. Uh, Scott W. says, my sanity. Jacob J., my body heat after you send me my beanie. <laughs> Garrett S., these nuts. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, again, question from hell. Uh, what are you refusing to concede? Cody K., the replay of past arguments in my head as I come up with more clever points. I win every damn time. (laughs) Uh, Jeremy T., that unfulfilled expectation within the mind is a problem as opposed to actual loss. That I have never actually gained or lost anything. Well, there you go. Is that it so far? No, no, no. It's very popular. (laughs) Uh, Bongo C., my ire towards Norman Vincent Peale for bringing us here. (laughs) Again, a question from hell. What are you refusing to concede? Pete, in all caps, says nothing. (laughs) Barrett M., the Nobel Peace Prize. All right. (laughs) I will kill any and all who deny me my God-given right. Uh, Benjamin C. Greedo shot first. Okay. Uh, Warren L. Coffee. I can quit anytime I want, just not today. <laughs> Bruce B. The 2000 Supreme Court coup. Justin M. Uh, to the question from hell, what are you refusing to concede? That the broad democratic non-agenda of a return to normalcy and civility, coupled with a years-long failure to associate Donald Trump with the rest of the Republican Party and the numerous unforced errors of rehabilitating and endearing people like Lindsey Graham to American voters (laughs) just before the election, as well as a promise to oppose populism and progressivism in all its forms and instead seek common ground after the fever breaks across the aisle in a Biden administration are the reasons for democratic down ballot losses not bernie sanders wow super long (laughs) dan k to um what are you refusing to concede that joe biden isn't really a marxist (laughs) 
Chandler H. that I would go into work without hearing the results of my COVID test first. David G. The comments. Scott A. My gut. <laughs> Carl K. That my mother was right in 1972. <laughs> uh, Bogey G. I refuse to concede to alcoholism. Krimsky <laughs> <laughs> uh, K. I refuse bankruptcy. I bet my last dollar on it. <laughs> That's the last one. So, again, the question from hell for you, our listening audience, this week is what are you unwilling to concede? What are you refusing to concede? The first sort of our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new Graham Black This Is Hell Winter Cap. You can check out the new Graham Black This Is Hell Winter Cap and all of our new Graham Black swag by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at this is hell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In rotten history, mid-November 1973, 47 years ago this week, in Greece, where a U.S.-backed right-wing military junta had monopolized political control since taking power in a coup six years earlier, because that's what the United States did around the world during Richard Nixon's and Henry Kissinger's reign of terror, students at the Athens Polytechnic University were on strike, uh, protesting the dictatorship's suppression of democracy, free speech, and civil rights. You know, what the U.S. Stand, supposedly stands for, but in reality, our government has done everything to suppress, not only here within our own borders, but around the world. U.S. Vice President Spiro Agnew, himself of Greek descent. Really? A guy with the first name of Spiro is of Greek descent? I'm shocked. U.S. Vice President Spiro Agnew, himself of Greek descent, had called the junta, quote, the best thing to happen to Greece since Pericles. But the students were angry about the torture, imprisonment, and exile of political descendants, as well as the forced conscription of student protesters in the Greek military, among other things. So, apparently, Pericles must have been a dick. The students occupied the university campus, and as they began broadcasting their demands on a makeshift radio station, city residents, construction workers, and farmers from surrounding areas went into the streets of Athens to join the demonstrations, and everything and everyone lived happily ever after. Unless... In Rotten History, on November 16th, the Greek protests turned sporadically violent, and on November 17th, 1973, 47 years ago tomorrow, Tuesday, the junta struck back with a military response, sending troops in a tank into the university campus. Some two dozen civilians were killed, including several high school students and a five-year-old boy. Hundreds more suffered injuries. Another year would pass before the dictatorship collapsed. The Greek monarchy was abolished, and Greek citizens were able to elect a new Republican government. Incidentally, the tank attack had occurred on the same day that U.S. President Richard Nixon, under pressure in the Watergate scandal, had declared at a press conference, I am not a crook. Well, Nixon may have claimed he was not a crook. He was a crook, but he never claimed he was a humanitarian and certainly never claimed he was not a war criminal. So at least he was honest, kinda. Finally, in Rotten History, November 18th, 1421, 599 years ago this Wednesday. So we'll be celebrating the 600th anniversary next year. 
A heavy storm surge on the Dutch North Sea coast pounded against the dikes in the southern Netherlands and northern Flanders, finally causing the all-important seawalls to collapse in several places. The catastrophic breach allowed a torrent of seawater into the polders, farmland that lay below sea level and which had been gradually reclaimed from the ocean by many generations of dam builders and producing incredibly fertile ground. The flood swept dozens of Dutch villages completely off the map, including some that had been rebuilt after a similar flood just 17 years earlier. Estimates of the number of people killed range from 2,000 to 10,000. Some areas were never drained again and remain underwater to this day. Who knew you could not control the ocean and stop it from flooding areas that are actually below sea level? Oh, yeah. Gravity and everybody. That's rotten history, and this is hell. Daphne, do you know who is on tomorrow's Tuesday's live show beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time? Um, on Tuesday's show, we have Alastair Bonnet on his book Elsewhere, A Journey into Our Age of Islands. And Wednesday, do we know that too? Yes. Oh. On Wednesday's show, Jennifer Berkshire and Jack Schneider on their book A Wolf at the schoolhouse door, the dismantling of public education and the future of school. And Thursday, we're not too certain at this point, but we will find out within the next 24 to 36 hours. Jeff Dorchin will, of course, though, be delivering a moment of truth. And just to give you a heads up about next week's shows, we are doing shows on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of Thanksgiving week. And I really hate the name Thanksgiving for that holiday. Uh, but we're going to be doing shows on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. No Thursday show next week, but we will still have a Friday Patreon podcast. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's, this Monday's show, every Monday's show, is Daphne Agusen. Thanks to Brian Hugh. Thanks to Daphne. Thanks to Alex Jerry. Thanks to Ronaldo for doing Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron and Richard Norwood for all of the work that they have done behind the scenes. And Richard now, running the board. We told you so. This is Hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.